Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. See, <laughs> Evan fell prey to what Falcon Boys does. I don't need you to do it. I'm also. doing it anyway. Like, I just like I like the communal activity of it. Yeah, yeah. it is a communal activity. And as a communist podcast, you know, True. it's all about communal activity. We need to get back here. on like our communist shit. There was like whatever. three weeks where we pretended to care about politics on here. Like around the time it seemed like Bernie had a chance. Uh, well, True. everyone, True. I was also one of those. I mean, everyone, we all, yeah, we all cared that like, time when we had a hope bit. for that time. Yeah. yeah. Remember we, that we reached, we reached into our bag and we're, you know, going mar with it. We had to get a little political. <laughs> well, you <know>? back then, <laughs> you know, it was like, we have this socialist candidate candidate in the primaries doing really well i'm working at a minimum wage fast True. food restaurant job but now it's like yeah sure we got our you know dead fish libtard at the wheel but uh you know i'm mr hollywood i'm rolling in it i don't yeah. care True, we've ascended we've ascended we're elites now joe so. brandon yeah. uh thank you thank you very much mister <laughs> um for getting rid of our hope and replacing it with something better <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with giving me the circumstance of falling into a better job than I had three years ago. There you go. That's him. There you go. That was him. Welcome to Extended Clip. I am one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And joining us on the couch, Malcolm has slid over to the Ed McMahon spot because mm -hmm. we have a very special guest, the host of Jokerman and the new Never Ending Stories podcast. It's Evan. What's up, Evan? Hello. I'm sorry I took your spot, apparently. No, no, no. That, that is, yeah, you make it a little awkward with, like, the well, bringing I, up the dynamics of everything. I think people, people don't realize the respect that is involved in Ed McMahon sliding over to let the guests True. have that well, so spot. I'm, so, what, you're Johnny? I'm Ed. What is it? Well, JT's come on. What, We've the been through this band? many come times. Yeah. Can I be, can I be Dick Cavett? I'm just on the fucking <laughs> table. <laughs> yeah, and this Dick Cavett, he's doing his own show. He's just coming over here for this one episode, yeah. you know. No, I like I like sitting in the chair. I kind of get like Cheshire cat, like I get a little bit like <laughs> like mysterious and waiting like I'll just comment out of the blue with yeah. kind of You're you're over there in the shadows. We can barely see yeah. you. <laughs> and and there's just the glow, the faint glow of your pipe. The, yeah, the glow and it's you know, every every once in a while I'll light up the room with my words, but I'll I'll sit sit back here, you know. It's a dark night in Los Angeles, in yeah. black and white, yeah. chiaroscuro, That's right. cinematography. The clouds are passing through. The smoke is passing through. People are smoking. People are obscured by clouds. <laughs> people are smoking pipes and cigarettes, people cigars. Are, people are, uh, people's motivations are obscured as well as their, uh, <laughs> their ethics oh, okay. uh, by the circumstances of the time. It is 1950, and we're in the land of film noir. Uh, and Malcolm is our isolated, our, our urban alienated protagonist, lost to the city. I, I, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to get too ahead, but I, it is while watching Anna Lonely Place. So I was like, oh wow, they like they made a movie about me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so our double feature this week, uh, as we just got into, Evan brought it. Timeline A, 1950, In a Lonely Place by Nicholas Ray. Returning champion Nicholas Ray. We've talked about him quite a few times. And then I think this is the first time we're ever going to talk about a Coen Brothers movie on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, it sounds so. crazy, but we've gone three years. It's finally time to do one. Barton Fink from 1991 in Timeline B. But we're starting in 1950 
Evan, why is it in a lonely place that you wanted to pick for this this era of cinema, this this sweet spot of the late 40s going into the 50s? Well, I had seen it at Film Forum during this uh, period when they were, they were doing a, a bogey fest. Uh, um, that's what they called it. <laughs> no, I don't think that's what it was called. It could have it easily been called that. Bogey fest good, is yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I'll, I'll talk to them <laughs> about next year. <laughs> uh, it, it was uh, the first time I'd seen it. It was also like the first time I'd seen Casablanca. I was just going oh, wow. every uh, other day. to. to I couldn't get enough of, of the guy. Of course. And then I, I saw In a Lonely Place knowing almost nothing about it. And I really loved it. I thought it was uh, it was bracingly negative. I liked that the, the ending just uh, it blew my socks off, as they say. It made me it, uh, it was it was so satisfyingly sad, um, and I I just didn't expect it, you know, at, from a movie at that time. You know, it's like. You'd think that things are just about to be on the uptick and everybody's like starting to be more optimistic about the prospects of post-war life. And in fact, um, no, Uh, (laughs) it's almost like the personal stuff in the film is it it has nothing to do with the outside circumstances. It's just a very deeply personal. It's almost not a film noir in a traditional sense, it's so interior, it's so just like about one guy and how he can't, uh, he's trying to be normal, but like, is he trying? Yeah. I don't know. I'm rambling, but it's, I, I love the, the film. Anything you want to make you happy? Well, the film brings about rambling because it is a very complicated one. You know, you put it in the box of film noir, but it doesn't really jive with, let's say, to have and have not the big sleep Maltese Falcon, yeah. other Bogart noir. And it's because film noir is a bigger thing than people think. Uh, it, it's more expansive than just being detective stories and gangster movies that are moody. Uh, I, I think it really all is this balance of crime stories and uh, melodrama. Mm-hmm. And both of them are tied together through, you know, urban alienation often. It's usually, you know, a city uh, a- and a lonely person losing themselves in that city. And I, I think that uh, In a Lonely Place is one that, yeah, it leans much toward the melodrama side of it. It's like so far into it that this is 1950. A few years later, you get some of the great melodramas ever with the those Douglas Sirk Technicolor melodramas. And it's like, yeah, maybe this film feels closer to a Douglas Sirk melodrama than, uh, you know, To Have and Have Not or The Big Sleep or something like that. And I think that's why it works so well. The, the aesthetics and the mood still scream film noir, but the emotionality and the, you know, uh, really the big swings with like symbolism and characters representing bigger ideas and everything feel more connected with the, uh, the big melodramas of the era. And that's why I think this film's so effective. No, yeah, I mean, Ray is an amazing director, and kind of, you look at a lot of his movies, They Live by Night, Johnny Guitar, he could kind of, you know, They Live by Night also being kind of noir, he kind of can take a different emotional vantage point Mm -hmm. than the traditional uh, mold of those pictures usually take, and I think that's why 
you know his his when he goes for emotion it hits so hard because it it uh i don't know it's it's just evoking something different from these genres than we're usually used to and you know i think that's why he's so beloved it's like rebel without a cause in a Mm -hmm. way i mean another film by ray and it in that in the sense that i mean my favorite thing about the movie is that it's about this character who kind of represents like a this crossroads of, of masculinity uh, is he and he's an artist, but he's also um, kind of a, a, a brutish monster. He's like a delicate and sensitive person and he is um, uh, just the opposite. And it, it kind of never lets you off the hook of like, am I like how, how much of this person is wor- is redeemable? Mm-hmm. Like what, what am I supposed to think about them? And, it seems like yeah, Rebel Without a Cause is another example where he's kind yeah, of going totally. deep into that, and these these dark, kind of disturbing and difficult relationship things. Like I think of in Rebel Without a Cause, like him looking at his father wearing the maid's outfit, and it's just like, yeah, that's like a haunting. <laughs> it's haunting, and and there's a lot loaded into that. <laughs> and there's a lot of that in this film too. Well, yeah. Ray loves the sensitive thugs. I think we did an episode on They Live by Night, and we called it sensitive thug because a yeah. lot of his characters are like that. You know, troubled. You know, question or not, are these people redeemable? But they have such mm-hmm. potent emotion in a world that kind of tries to get them to bottle it up, and that alone is you know connects to the people watching it, and it's just uh, that kind of the guy who's like losing his shit while other people kind of put on this sense of normalcy. I think Mm -hmm. Ray did a good job of highlighting those characters. Yeah, no, the sensitive thugs have always been around. You know, you you get these old heads saying, oh, nowadays the gangsters are just uh, popping Percocet. They used to be hard criminals. But uh, then you go back, you you watch Bigger Than Life by Nick Ray. Uh, Freaking James Mason's like future in that movie. You know, that dude's (laughs) off all the pills. (laughs) JT, you had seen this one before, right? Yeah, no, this was a rewatch for me, and it was, like, it was funny because, like, obviously, like, I don't think, like, there there isn't really any mystery in, like, whether Bogey's character, Dixon Steele, Dick. has, like, a, which is just, like, a slick, like, he, it's, like, obviously, like, he's, like, fucked up and, like, an asshole, but it's also, like, Parts of it are in, like, the slickest, coolest way possible. Of course. Like, and uh, in terms of this rewatch, it was, like, obviously I knew, like, going in, like, you, he didn't kill this woman. But, like, you you have doubts, like, certainly. Because I, I couldn't remember the ending. And I was just like, but wait, like, I know we didn't see it. But, like, and obviously that's what it's getting at is that, like, he is a person who is very well, like, capable of just like committing like a murder like that. But I don't know from the beginning, it's like such an interesting like interplay of like that brutish masculinity being like very like cool, but like, uh, like two at points, like aside from just where he's like about to maul a man with a rock, oh, like yeah. it's when he's like slick talking so, the cops, like it's just like, Oh, this like, like I like this guy. Like he's a, he he's so like from yeah. anybody. Um, but also it's just like he's being really flippant about like a dead like a dead girl. Yeah. Um No, I mean and, and the the fact that his name is Dixon Steele. Dix. Like the he 
if you don't think the character in the source material is like a questioning of masculinity and a questioning of that type of character and how cool and admirable it can be at times while also being at like the the depths of humanity kind of uh you're out of your mind well, it's, it's all right there i started reading the book yeah. that it's based upon and i haven't finished it but uh it is absolutely insane and i i mean i was reading it, it was just like having like I, I went to a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown and was just eating my uh, soup and reading my book. Mm -hmm. And um, I like almost spit out my soup practically <laughs> at some of these, at some of these lines. I almost, I almost spit out my hot and sour soup all over the table reading some of this stuff. I, there's very salacious writing. Well, yeah. I mean, the original book, the plot is, uh, you know, in the in the film. Dick Steele is a screenwriter of some great talent, mm -hmm. uh, some promise. <laughs> he's going places, or he's gone places rather, yeah. and but he's uh, has horrible anger management problems, and he's probably fucked up from the war. But in the book, he is a younger man. He's also very suave. He's not a screenwriter. He was in the war, and he rapes and strangles women. And he he's just a rapist oh strangler. Oh my god! Jesus yeah. Christ! And Holy an fuck! That's the whole thing. He's just like a cool guy. He's living his life in Los Angeles. Like, say, you know, like I'm a writer. He's like getting some money from his uncle. And um, meanwhile, he's just um, wandering around um, doing that and and killing women. Well, that sounds much more like like a Sato. Yeah, like Hisayasu Sato or something like that. Like that is disturbing. There's some yeah. lines in it like the one that almost had me um uh, do a spit take of my soup that didn't really happen. <laughs> so, exactly. Your, of your hot and sour soup. You're like, "Dear lord." <laughs> <laughs> I uh it well, no, but honestly, I I did gasp because it's like this line that he's like talking about Mildred, you know, who's is mm -hmm. in this film too, is a character of Mildred. And in the book, uh, he rapes and kills her. And um, he, he says, like, she had lived a stupid life. She was like, not, like she had like a really stupid life. The only exciting thing that had ever happened to her Ooh. was being raped and murdered. And even then, she was a stand-in for somebody else. Jesus Christ. That's and this is written by a woman, by Dorothy uh, Hughes, I believe. Even worse. Now, um, <laughs> now, now, you know, that's funny because the movie, the character's like adapting a book, right? That he doesn't yeah. really read or exactly. cares about. So then there's and, another meta yeah, level to And that. I don't even, yeah. I don't know if Ray's, you know dislikes the book or whatever but it is it is like he's showing people how to adapt a book it's like you know take a take what you like from it and just leave yeah, the you rest. Just it was a code the thing though. Yeah. That, yeah. What, well what that's happened, also yeah they're gonna have to change a lot of that for the code but they switched it all up yeah but it works it's a great example of how to do an adaptation where you it, it's a bastardized version of the original but it's actually great in its own right what they've yeah. done yeah so if you don't know the story of the movie, basically, yeah, Bogey's a uh, Hollywood kind of hack screenwriter. You know, he's under contract with the studios and they give him a book to adapt. He doesn't want to do it. Uh, he gets a Czech girl to, you know, tell him the story because she's read the book before. Uh, they have a nice night together. Well, not really, but they have a night together of her telling the story. And then she winds up dead. And uh, his only witness is his neighbor who helps him out and they begin a relationship from there. So there's a lot going on in terms of like 
how Hollywood as a system treats people and washes people out, kind of, you know, uh, with, with the dead girl. You know, you have this girl who she's commuting in from Inglewood to work at the studio, goes to this guy's house in Beverly Hills after her day at the studio, and then gets dumped dead in Benedict Canyon, you know, and it's this awful process of, you know, the studio taking people in and spitting them out. Uh, and it, is not shy about showing that level of depravity. You know, you're, there's a great exposition where uh, when he's first questioned by the police, uh, they're like running down his rap sheet and it's just like case after case of abuse basically and like temper tantrums and things like that. And uh, this is back then. It's like, yeah, you could be a guy like on retainer from a studio who just like beats people up all the time. Yeah, we'll, like, we'll talk about that. Oh yeah, later one of our best the... writers. He uh, he beats people up all the time. He just <laughs> fucking beats people up. He beats them up. Yeah. Well, Good it's, for it's, him. It's just because he's getting drunk all the time. You that's know true. I mean? He's that's got true. his that's handlers. Good. You know the, the, <laughs> that's part of the, the, the what's I forget the character's name, but this older gentleman who's kind of his um, his man on in, on his side in the studio, mm-hmm. kind of. A, at at will fixer type his studio head guy that he works with yeah yeah who's like always just like creeping around the house and just like <laughs> hi uh, he's no, like this uh, avuncular uh, presence but it's always it's kind of to say like yeah like uh you know him you know dicks he's just he he uh he beats people uh <laughs> because he's such he's dynamite uh he's, he's a dynamite crazy. Well, he also, he's dynamite. they say he might like explode he writes about that type of stuff too right yeah. so it is kind of funny where it puts that into question where it is like you know this guy who writes about all this dark stuff and you know apparently indulges in some of that and like does that automatically you know make him guilty or not that's played with a little bit and i you know it is kind of funny ultimately you know we're talking about you know bogart being being like this symbol for like brooding masculinity and kind Mm -hmm. of like uh you know this certain path and ultimately it does you know like you said, it, Ray gives you the the harsh truth of like, yeah, this this type of living doesn't work out for you know for people, and I feel like that had to be somewhat autobiographical because I feel like he he struggled. I, I don't think this is poor research, but I just know he struggled throughout life. You know what I mean? So libel alert. Yeah, this yeah, movie yeah. is not uh, based uh, on Nicholas. No, Ray's yeah, but it, it's it's probably there's probably you know there's a little bit of no totally. R- I mean, it, it's yeah. easy to read that into it for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of you mentioned Eddie, like how the film shows how like the studio system uh, chews you up and spits you out. I wanted to like definitely talk about probably like my favorite uh, side character, and I also feel like he's an interesting like counterpoint of masculinity because he's like pretty impotent, like just being like uh, I don't know, just a drunk that has to like get money from mm. like steel but uh mel the old like uh like was he? He was he's like, like a, a classically yeah. trained actor mm-hmm. and he's like a studio stall like an old war horse that they they just yeah there's that scene where they're at the bar and some guy is um sh- is giving him a hard time and dicks uh does what he does and beats him up and that to defend the honor yeah, of this old time act. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. Which is, uh, it's a really great moment actually. 
And it also relates to, I mean, the very first thing we see in this movie over opening credits is him looking in the rearview mirror while driving. And so much of this is about moving forward versus looking back at this pivotal time in history. It's like the studio system wow, is yeah. like bouncing back after the war and everyone's back and they're, they're trying to do things a little different. You know, Technicolor is going to come around. They're going to have to compete with TV and radio and all that good stuff. And uh, also, you know, the these types of characters are going to get more complicated and different. And uh, actors like this guy are just going to be obsolete. People who were big in the silent era and the early talkies, they're, they're going to be done for. And, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to move on from stuff like that. And, you know, Dick Steele, he's not even that old, but he seems like an icon of even like what masculinity looked like in the studio system before he was even in the war. You know? Yeah. Well, the, the uh, amazing thing about the characterization and the way the character is written is that it indulges in like giving the coolest, like most idealized, I want to be that guy vision of what it is to be a writer. You have Humphrey mm -hmm. Bogart as a film writer and he's like cool and jaded and very funny in this dry way. That's genuinely charming so you get that thing of like, if that was the whole film and that was him, it would be like, oh, that movie with the really cool writer guy. And I, now I want to be a writer. But this movie also, gets, it basically says like, that's not enough. Like mm -hmm. being cool and charming and self-aware, there's a limit to it. And the film really explores that limit. Um, and in the context of like being someone who's in pictures and in the movies and uh, the way that it kind of, erodes or scratches away at, at these i think like secret dreams of a lot of people want to yeah. get into the industry it's just like yeah even if you are that cool guy like you're gonna have to deal with your own problem yeah and i mean the movie feels tragic and doomed from the start like no matter how cool he is at times mm -hmm. it's never gonna like lure people into hollywood it feels like inland empire or something like that in that <laughs> regard where it's like uh, and it, I was actually going to bring up Inland Empire in regards to our second movie, Barton Fink. True. Uh, but like, you know, the version of Hollywood that we envision versus what it actually is and the nightmare version of Hollywood. And, you know, Barton Fink actually uses kind of, you know, dream type logic and nightmare feeling in the in the uh you know, mood of the movie to set that, but you know, we're, we're not that far in time yet here in a, in a lonely place. Instead, he's using the kind of dreamlike atmosphere and aesthetics of film noir to tell this melodramatic story about the Hollywood system and crime and lust and all of that. Um, one of the craziest scenes is after he's been cleared, uh, and he's, he's buddies with one of the cops that's investigating mm -hmm. him. Bogart Brub. Is. Uh, yeah. Brub and dicks. <laughs> Brub and dicks. Uh, they should start a show together. The Brub and dicks show. I think that's, that's the names yeah. in the books too. In, in the book. I, I was just like, wow, Brub. I kind of just, I like Brub. Back Solo. when a, back when a man could be called Brub. Brub. Back when men were brub. <laughs> Whatever hap happened to the brub Dick Dixon type? That is true. That is gone. Um, well, actually, before the scene I want to get to, I'll, I will just say that Gloria Graham's introduction oh, yeah. is in the interrogation with that police officer and the other one. And the her introduction is staged so wonderfully with a boat. Bogart behind her uh, sitting, looking kind of inquisitively, but really like writerly. Like the yeah. way that he's looking at her uh, testifying in that scene, saying that, you know, uh, he saw 
that she saw him leave the apartment or whatever feels like he's getting ready to write a story about her you know and that's the the key to their relationship is that it is this artist muse relationship uh that then he tells her uh you know that she's everything he was looking for but it could only have happened at the hands of a death you know because the death of this young girl is what brings them together and in that moment, you just know that the story's ending tragically. There's no way I mean, that a death can bring these two people together uh, and, like, it ends happy, you know? The initial sort of, like, fun and games of their romance is just, like, the classic, like, dude gets a girlfriend kind of, like, changing his life. Yeah, it's like you start, like you start, like, uh, actually being able to do some work. You're like cleaning your bathroom and things like that. Like you're getting your life together then. You're sorting stuff out. But like, I don't know, obviously, just because of the whole nature of their relationship just being predicated on like a murder mystery that is like like unsolved for the majority of their relationship. And just like, again, it's like not like the fact that it is like unsolved is like irrelevant because it's just like all of his close friends and like associates like could very like, it's so believable that he could just have strangled and just dumped a woman from a moving car. Yeah. It, it's sort of, I mean, it's a, it's a really clever, it's more than clever. I think it's like artful the, the way that the movie has that floating over it, that there's an actual murder or worse. You know I mean? It, that has occurred and then everything that he does all of his baggage is kind of like it just makes you think about the potential that he has to be the guy and that is also how the movie wraps up which is i think genius the way that by the end i mean i don't know if we want to spoil Go ahead. but it, it basically he shows himself through an, an act of violence, um, you know, one of several major like moments of him out having an outburst. He basically is, even though he's cleared, his name is cleared of that crime. It, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The, the line is, this would have meant so much to us yesterday or yesterday this would have meant so much to us, which is like my favorite line in the movie. Yeah, And it's Gloria Graham implying that, you know, him being cleared of the initial murder would have meant more if she hadn't just seen, seen what that he, he is clearly he capable well of killing people. Yeah. He yeah. could have been, it's just like, you, yeah. you just saw him on the wrong day, yeah. but he's the, he's the murderer in, in a, in a sense. Anyway. And I think one of the best scenes in that regard also is, I wanted to get back to this earlier was, Uh, after he's more friendly with the cop, after that first clearance, kind of, and he goes over to the cop's house for dinner, and he's restaging the murder, how he thinks it would have happened with the cop and the cop's wife. And, you know, it gets into these ideas about being a writer and creating these situations of bad things that happen to people and entangling that into your real life. 
And, you know, this is real life and death that he's involving himself with, but he writes about fake life and death all the time. And, the, you know, it's countless stories and movies about this kind of thing, about, you know, the, the creative and their real life and their work colliding. But I think it's really powerful uh, in, in this scene in particular uh, when he's kind of staging the incident again. And you just see that look in his eye that... Even if he didn't do it, he's getting excited about how good this murder is. Yeah, his, mm-hmm. you know that that's what makes you know the relationship so great is that you know it's uh, it has it builds it up with these sweet moments, these very romantic moments. It seems like you know they have the perfect match for each other. You know, Bogart's really in, into that. She's cool. Like finally a cool girl. Yeah. Yeah. She's not cool. Uh, um, yeah, and, and, and I like that he's that he likes that aspect of her. It's like she's cool. But he's so tied to this morbidity, whether it be what he writes or just kind of the, his self-destructive nature in general that, you know, it, it is kind of funny. You do have this crime that's hanging over the head of the thing. And it's, you know, I think it's a great, you know, kind of subversion that, you know, it's it's more that, you know, the pressure put on by this suspicion and kind of the pressure cooker that kind of this relationship is in that, you know, they're not even quite aware of but that it, it's all going to come to a head and in, in a way and that's it, you know it makes the end and you know when they you know she starts being suspicious of bogart and kind of you know like the last 20 minutes she's like fidgeting around bogart thinking like she's about to get killed and i you know i think that's what makes it so effective is you see these such sweet romantic moments before but just kind of the person he is and what he's dedicated his mindset to kind of like this you know this path is it's just not going to end well well well, there's this thing in it that is really a pivotal moment where they're out with um their friends with brub and his um his wife and he and uh, it doesn't matter it's brub's wife (laughs) no the other uh gloria (laughs) graham's oh gloria graham yeah yeah (laughs) yeah laurel is laurel yeah laurel gray they're out all together like a double date on the beach and it comes to uh, through a, a slip of the tongue um it's clear that uh, from brub's wife that like laurel has gone to the police again or or i believe that's what happens mm-hmm. like has talked about uh about bogart's character in yeah. dicks and so he just flips out and they he's driving angrily like 80 miles an hour through the canyon and that's when he has this outburst of, um, uh, you know, there's like an altercation with another vehicle. And he almost like Cain enables this guy with a rock like on the side of the road and she's screaming for him to stop. Uh, there's something about that moment, why he goes over the edge there. It's like it's very tragic for the reason that he's a person who we now know at that point. know he has we know he's that potential, but it's the fact that he now thinks that she thinks he's like that. And yeah. so he becomes like that. It's that thing of like becoming like giving up. Like he's just like, well, I guess I am that way. And then he just does it. Um, and that is another really tragic part of the, yeah, it's, it's in the same way you could be kind of spurred on to be a better man and have your act cleaned up as you see him do. Mm-hmm. He also does the opposite. I don't know. I think that like, her on sleeping pills and terrified of him and him thinking that it's just like nice and normal marriage like oh this is how it's going to be like not marriage but like relationship like this is how it's going to be you know uh that that's like the saddest part of the movie for me. Oh, it's like 15 yeah. minutes of her just being terrified and 
I don't know. It leads up to the ending, and of course. And JT, go ahead. And I also think, I mean, the way that he is going about like their romanticism is this sort of like whirlwind style that is just like impossible to like. I, I don't know, live up to. Like, it's this sort of, like, kind of delusional romantic reality where he's just like, okay, we're getting engaged today, baby. We're going to, like, fly out. Like, we're going to do this, like, fast, real quick. Like, that, like, obviously it's coming from a very well-intentioned, like, place of love. But it's, like, that type of, like, I don't know, kind of crazy fever-pitched, like romanticism that just like is not practical and like isn't going to work out it's almost like life just, and death like he's he he's like we might die tomorrow i might kill yeah. someone like so we got to do it now yeah he's trying he's racing against like the inevitable collapse of the relationship i think to to put a pin in this one first of all I, it, as we get to our rating this is a five for me five volts this is one of the best movies of its era i think you know it's the the peak of nicholas ray you know of of what i've seen at least uh whether it's you know you want the the early crime movies or the later melodramas this one kind of apexes right in between those and uh yeah i just think it's fantastic the the realization that gloria graham has that bogart could kill her being the ending is one of the most tragic and kind of nuanced endings of the era that i can think of i just think it's just such a stunner every time uh malcolm yeah i'm gonna go four and a half bullets love nicholas ray love this movie this i kind of saw this early on in like my movie my movie watching career that i'm getting compensated for but um i i I, I, it's a living yeah like like (laughs) i think bog i mean bogart's obviously an actor that's gotten his due but like i just thinking of all the movies he did in this era it is He's so great in just like that plug and play, like immediate chemistry with like his female mm-hmm. counterpart actor. It's even of the time, it is kind of like he had he was a one of one of locking down kind of like this romantic chemistry, you know, even despite not being, you know, maybe, you know, a John Cena, traditional, you know, yeah. uh, hunk guy or whatever. Are you going to say John Cena? John C. Riley. I did say John Cena. <laughs> John Cena, John C. Riley. I said John Cena. Um, he's, he's no John Cena. But, uh, <laughs> You're right. Humphrey Bogart is not as classically handsome as John <laughs> Cena. <laughs> Every woman's dream guy. <laughs> Every woman would kill to be with John Cena. John, John Cena with a bogey like career. It might uh, happen. Give it, give it 20 years. Yeah, I think movies are about to get real. Real weird. He'll be the next Marlowe for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> True. In Marlowe 2, the <laughs> Neeson uh, sequel. Um, no, but I uh, just kind of like the doom romanticism, I feel like is so specific to Ray. And like he, he has his own type of romance within his movies that just, uh, you know, kind of, you know, are all sweeping, all encompassing. You know, they really get a hold of you. And, uh, you know, every time I watch one of his movies, I feel like Godard and one of his, you know, scribbles just be the race and just not even making sense. Just yeah. talking about Ray. But I think I think his particular sense of emotional tendencies, I think, kind of brings that out of people, you know, kind of uh, almost getting hysterical over him. Well, but that's uh, the thing. That's yeah. why Godard just wrote nonsense about Ray is because he's such an intellectual and he can't like figure out why. <laughs> He's having this much of an emotional impact from a movie like this. You know, uh, you, you can't write the way Godard wrote criticism and talk 
properly about in a lonely place johnny guitar rebel without a cause Mm -hmm. because it's just like it is going to become insane platitudes that don't even make sense in french it is it is yeah you do you do become a platitude merchant when you talk about ray (laughs) but Uh, i I, I think it's you know it just goes to show you his movies have a powerful effect the casting is really remarkable Mm -hmm. it's it, it i can't imagine anyone but who we see in the film in the film um JT, do you want to so give any final thoughts on a score? Um, yeah, I'm going to go five bullets as well. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> just uh, I, like so much of it is just constructed uh, towards this uh, incredibly complicated character that you can get like you just get like sucked into his charm and just like cynicism. And then also, I don't know, like the fact that it's not just like a miserable time seeing like a person be such a piece of shit because you also get that like sensitivity, like the aspect. Cause he does like, he cares about Mel. Like he does legitimately like fall for Laurel and is like sensitive and kind. Like it's not like, I, I, I don't know. It just is becomes such a complex character that you can extrapolate so much else that like speaks to like universal qualities of masculinity. And then again, like we, we already talked about it a lot on this, but the ending is just like for even for like a, like a something in the noir realm where they had a little bit more wiggle room with getting away with like negative endings, like bogey, like does like, like almost kill her. Like, he is, like, hand on the face, like, holding her down. And, like, if that phone call didn't happen, like, clearing him, like, he very well could have just, like, killed her there. And that is just such a, like, just miserable fucking ending. (laughs) Uh, Evan, I know that you guys on Jokerman do not abide by the five bullet, five star, anything, five point rating, but... Much like we would sacrifice two of our bullets to go on your three-point rating, you have to grade <laughs> on the five bullets uh, <laughs> for In a Lonely Place. Three How- out of three stars, and it's five out of five bullets. Ooh, there, there it is. is. That's there it is. That's easy easy like conversion that. rate. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's an See, easy that's yeah. thing. You get, you get into these weird conversions. Three stars, five bullets. Yeah, no, that's easy. <laughs> that's simple. And it's a, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Everything you guys have said about the movie is true. And all <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank God. He's been fact-checking. It's true. No, I looked time. it up. It, it, everything you said is right. Um, the, the, the thing you said, JT, about is characters... Uh, how do I put it? Like, the authenticity of those emotions is what makes it so tragic. That it's not like some some monstrous person who learns to love. It's like... It's like a sensitive person who who kind of can't overcome being monstrous. Mm-hmm. Um, the The film ends with this quote that happens actually in the middle and is kind of called back to, which is a line from Dix's uh, script. Or he's like, I want to put this in a script. And I think it says everything about the character. He says, I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. Even his romance the height of his romantic gesture telling um laurel laurel this line that seems to be written about and for her or inspired by his love for her the fact that even that line is so grim um so morbid uh really encapsulates like the doomed 
romance that this movie is all about. Yeah, I can't believe we we didn't we went through all the you know segment we didn't say the quote the big money quote. You that's know the I mean? big quote. <laughs> that's the big quote. But the yeah. one that sticks with me the m- more is yesterday. This would have meant so much to us. That's, oh yeah, that's a, a lot of great lines. Her delivery that's, is just great. There too. is so oh my. <laughs> it seems it's the, uh, it is the ultimate tragedy. Two two chill cool people who are smart <laughs> and well dressed, able to find love. No, yeah. no one too of them cool for love. Too, too cool for love. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Humphrey Bogart is too cool for love. That yeah, that'd be sick. I'd watch Directed that. by Tony Scott, written by Shane Black, uh, <laughs> produced by Simpson and Bruckheimer. Co-starring uh, Terry Gar. Sure. Uh, wow, this is, this is <laughs> very. I'm going deep. This but, is a specific vision that I'm not even quite too seeing, cool right? for love. <laughs> a movie of that that movie would suck. The reason why this movie is good <laughs> is that he's actually too hot for love. Like he is too like he wants to be cool and he can't. He has no chill ultimately, is and this true. is what dooms yeah. him. He's too sweet. He's too Damn. much of a romantic it's, and. Yeah, it makes him a monster. It's cool to punch a guy a couple times, but like right when you're about to kill him, everyone's like, "Ugh." Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's not. You're cool. defending, yeah, defending my honor. You're so dreamy, and it's then like, you just whoa. smash his head. In your yeah. <laughs> hey, wait a second. Well, <laughs> we will be back on extended clip. Here's today. This would have meant so much to us. Now it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. She loved me. You like it? What is it? I, I want to put it in the script. I, I don't know quite where. I'm not. I've only thought about it once. You a fast thinker? Not right now. I didn't get much sleep last night. A neighbor kept me awake. Well, go ahead and get some sleep and we'll have dinner together tonight. We'll have dinner tonight, but not together. Uh, also, there might be an interruption at some point. Rob, as we know, is at the Oscars right now. Yeah. Uh, he might try to call in from the red really? carpet. Oh, wait. Wow. It's the final oh, Oscars. Sick. Well, that would be perfect for the Barton Fink episode to exactly. mention yeah. that yeah. it's Oscar yeah. night. It's Oscar's favorite you night. You didn't even know it was at the Oscars today, man? That's how what cool this hell? guy is. I, I, knew, I knew it was. <laughs> I just am not going to watch that show. You wanted yeah. to get that on mic saying, oh, I didn't even know it was the Oscars tonight. I've kind of taken a... <laughs> You know, dark enlightenment approach with the Oscars, you know? Uh, what exactly what, does what dark, enlightenment dark enlightenment mean? <laughs> dark enlightenment. It's when you put a little milk in your in your coffee. <laughs> that You know, that's that's not a bad... No, it's kind of a... I just wanted to give it a cool term. I, maybe it's not quite dark enlightenment, but <laughs> it's like... Are you just watching them? I, I, I just watch it. Now. <laughs> the dark, you know, you could kind of make lame things sound cool if you're talking around them enough. You know? <laughs> Entering a page, a period of dark enlightenment uh, by watching the Oscars. <laughs> I traffic in harsh truths only. 
<laughs> if the truth isn't harsh, I don't believe it. Oh my god. <laughs> hey man, you know, there's only one night a year that they dedicate to the movies, you know. That's right. So it is funny, like every time I do that and then I watch it, it is like this does actually kind of suck, like written in like an objective way, where it's just like, oh no! I mean, the dark a- enlightenment thing is real. It's awful <laughs> yeah. to watch it. It's like looking into a well and seeing a body. It's the terrible. only thing I can root for in the Oscars is like how bad of a TV uh, event it can be. Like I True. want it to be like the worst TV event possible. Just like yeah. the most mess ups, the most miscues, <laughs> the most bad awards, like not even like True. Like, like it that every, is the that's the thing. Coda won Best Picture last year, but everyone mm. knew it was going to everyone had accepted that a horrible movie was going to win Best Picture. What I'm looking for, you know, obviously the Moonlight La La Land thing was great. Uh, just giving the award to the wrong movie and having to take it back. Like, that <laughs> fucking rocks. I would have been like, no uh, also, take backs. Yeah, no yeah, take backs. One of the bigger upsets in terms of gambling odds was Anthony Hopkins beating uh, the late Chadwick that Boseman. That was hilarious. Which is one of the craziest yeah, things so that funny. Yeah, Chadwick Boseman between, you know, he was in Judas and the Black Messiah. He died. Everyone was like, he's going to win Best Supporting Actor yeah. for Judas and the Black Messiah. The odds were like... You ha- you would have to bet twelve hundred dollars to win a hundred dollars, basically, for him to uh, uh, on him. But Anthony Hopkins. But Anthony Hopkins. Won. I would love to <laughs> for be a movie no one saw. Yeah, for the father betting on on the Oscars, but having no like cultural uh, like not being up to date, just being like Anthony Hopkins. He's one of the f- most famous actors there is. Yeah, well, I've never even heard of this Chadwick Boseman yeah, who the guy? heck is that? I mean, Anthony Hopkins. Remember that movie? He was, remember the Silent of Silence the Silent of the, of the, of the, the That's Oscar's favorite movie. The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Last time I checked. Last no. se- yeah, last time I checked. <laughs> last time I checked, 1991. That was Oscar's favorite movie. Yeah, my money's on him. Just but somebody that's, like senile. That's that's literally what's going on. That's yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. Well, that's why You're I right, have dude. my outside shot on the Fableman, dude. Yeah. I, could, I buy that. Because fucking everything, everything everywhere has like insane odds to win. Like, oh, again, you would have yeah. to bet like fucking $800 to win $100 for... Uh, everything everywhere it's like locked in and the only ones that are kind of like whatever odds are like banshees and a couple other ones that I one's think gonna win all the old fogies are gonna be like oh i'll just give it to my old buddy steven spielberg for the fableman because the old people hate everything everywhere old the people fableman. do not get that movie oh uh, it's not just old people also, I hate that I movie. Also hate. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I am a Sprite 28 years old. Yeah. Sprite? Is that the right word Sprightly. there? Sprightly, Sprightly yeah. 28 Sprite. years old, and I drink a lot of lemon lime soda. Uh, <laughs> Sprite. As a Sprite drinker. As a Sprite 80-year-old. Yeah, that, yeah that that's movie, the right term. everywhere, everything, all the time. Uh, every all time. All the time. All the time. Everything, all the time, all... You know, I, I, I feel like I did the... Jo- my new... I invented a move. It's called the Jojo Rabbit because I invented it when Jojo Rabbit came out. Yeah. It is like there's a movie once a year that is discourse heavy. It's just like I'm not even going to touch it. Yeah. Not even going to ever entertain thinking about seeing it. Mm-hmm. And then it'll all wash over and I'll have survived like the, the storm. Much like Jojo. People don't talk about Jojo Rabbit. Thank no God. You know, so it's like that was like because I, I don't want to be like the guy at a party where everyone's like. They asked me, oh, everything, you know, that was a cool movie, right? You're enthusiastic about that. I just, I, I, 
I, I, I don't revel it anymore telling people that their taste is... Oh, it, I, it, this it, happened It to makes me, me cringe. I, was, oh, I, I pretend I, was I haven't dinner. seen that movie. Yeah, yeah. I was straight up... I didn't... That's the problem. I can't. I like. I was at dinner <laughs> with my family and my sister and her Well, I'll, her go, I'll go after and, family for sure. And No, it was my sister's boyfriend and he just liked the movie and I just said... It, I, I did not... I had no chill. Yeah. I just said, no, it looks like shit. I basically said that. <laughs> um, yeah, someone at work asked me if I saw it yesterday. Or the other day, rather, and I was just like, "Nah." Yeah, I think I said it I'm never sick, going though. to see that. <laughs> uh, <you laughs> no, no, it looks cool though. I like it. It looks, no, that looks sick, cool. dude. That looks, that looks cool. crazy. That, that looks crazy. crazy. <laughs> it yeah, does multiverse look stuff crazy. is crazy. You That's can, why I'm, I'm lying if I say, "Yeah, it looks crazy." That, man. that looks crazy. I think yeah. Nate was Nate had that letterbox. Nate Fisher had that letterbox list of like movies I actually say are my favorite movies instead of my actual favorite movies yeah. when I'm talking to normal people. <laughs> Code I th- switching. I think, I, think, I think that was a good good method Code of thought. Switching. That was Everything, and- every word. <laughs> All oh, yeah, yeah, man, I love everything. <laughs> I'm just saying Couldn't that go for you it have this yeah, ultimate Let's the ultimate not dive too let's deep into that. Cut that one out. <laughs> How, what's, what code we're switching into where. Uh, we're back on extended clip. Oscar's corner is over. Uh, you know, I, like, I like that segment. If yeah, people people should know yeah, that it's Oscar good. Sunday. It's Oscar's favorite night. We're talking yeah. about movie. Exactly. Movies. And we are talking about the movies of 1949 first uh, because it's Malcolm in the Middle. Life is unfair. It's everyone's favorite segment, Malcolm in the Middle, where in this special season, we are catching up on our, our gap years in our timeline project. So the films of 1948 are pretty interesting. Uh, we'll just go right into it. We usually plan this segment a little more, but let's freestyle. Yeah, it. just list list them. And yeah, just because yeah. uh, 48, you have Red River by Howard Hawks. You have fucking uh, Letter from an Unknown Woman by Ophels and you have Fort Apache by John Ford. Now, those three alone, that gets you all timer status. That's like, yeah. come on, man. What do you even? What are you, what are you waiting for? You, got, you talk <laughs> about how those movies aren't great? No. Yeah, you got all the movies right there. No, but uh, if, if we want to single in on one, I will say Red River is the one to do it. Um, also, because we've done an episode on Fort Apache. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Red River, I just think, I mean, we were just talking about the roles of masculinity. And I think Red River sets up a great, not even like a dichotomy, but like a trichotomy. <laughs> like there's, there's just like, Red River is just like, different ways to be a man you know like they're they're every character feels so symbolic in that one and it's howard hawks so of course like masculinity and like it's different forms are always gonna come about and the the role that masculinity plays in like professionalism whether it's you know uh, rounding up cattle or in other movies uh you know any other profession that gets covered but uh yeah that's my kind of 1948 pick jt do you have anything you want to shout out from this this first period of 48 49 um yeah i think this is uh uh is this yeah raj kapoor's uh directorial debut uh og i I guess that's how you'd pronounce it a a g is the spelling right yeah, yeah. It sounds like a, like something like like a Kathy noise or whatever. Like <laughs> ah, I think that's but, okay. Close enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Like I don't know. It's a great debut where like Kapoor is already like I feel like showing his very like theatrical like showmanship qualities. Like a lot of I mean now I'm doing a little run of just like working through his entire filmography now. 
and uh, I don't know. He's just like most of his stories like have that theatrical style and then are about like uh, childhood friends like fighting over a woman. And like what more is there to movies than that other than just like, I don't know, just just fighting over a dame. How pussy and money get in the way. <laughs> Tale as old as time. <laughs> Malcolm, anything from that first wave that you want to check before we go to timeline B in the 90s? Uh... I'll also say from 1949, you got Late Spring, which I think is still my favorite Ozu. I, I think like there's something about the emotional impact. I mean, every time I talk about Ozu on this podcast, I, I'm reduced to being a, an emotional baby. I'm like, you know, that movie just had such an emotional impact. And, uh, hey, but man, it's it's, like, that's natural. You're yeah, feeling emotional. It, 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 well, obviously, <laughs> it, like movies aging with us as we get older and move through our ages of cinephilia from our teen years to our college years to our young adult years to our, you know, being near 30 years. Uh, we, we see ourselves projected in these generational family dramas of Ozu in very different ways as time goes by. And Late spring, man, I haven't even rewatched it in like five years, but I think about it all the time. It, what, what Ozu should I watch first? I, I'm an Ozu I would, I would say go late spring. I would say late spring Sounds is a good. great one. Uh, and then you can uh, you know either go earlier, but like... If you his post war ones are really like impactful, like those mm. ones are all great. And then the the last decade decade of his work, he starts experimenting with color. But I would say watch some black and white ones first. Late spring, Tokyo Story, JT. You're a big Ozu head. Yeah, no, I would say start with like one of the big ones like that, like Late Spring or Tokyo Story. I also, um, I don't know. I feel like maybe something like because I feel like there is this like misrepresentation of Ozu's work is like particularly like like art house serious and like I don't know it is kind of like but the man has a lot of laughs and so I'd I recommend mean, like half good- of those movies are about getting drunk with your boys and like half exactly of them have like yeah fart jokes you know yeah no well, that's I don't like art say. house stuff. I don't want something too artsy you know I exactly. want it to be like kind of uh, that's why I'm you know what I my Oscar picks are like. Oh. You know, I've good got everything all the time. Really every time, too. you know, it's a movie. I like lightheartedness. <laughs> well, Malcolm uh, uh, is the king of light humor. True, so. light humor. I, just, I, do like light humor. I didn't know that that movie had light humor. I need to check. Oh, it out. dude, there's a part where people have hot dogs for fingers. It's very much light humor. Well, that's see, that's uh, not, uh, in in late spring. That's, no, in uh, everything <laughs> all the time in my ass. That's, yeah. that's, that's not light humor. That's random humor. That's true. There is a fine <laughs> line between light humor and being. Random. I'm so sorry to have brought it back to that that yeah, picture. Okay. 1990. Now there's some sleeper. This is I'm calling this the year of the sleeper hits. Oh, because you have like a bunch of all time greats that we don't even have to mention, like yeah. Goodfellas, Close Up, etc. But what are the sleeper hits? Sleeper hits. I think. Well, two in particular. I think Days of Thunder. Ooh. Tony Scott is. Oh, yeah. It's personally my favorite Tony Scott movie. Um, it, it, yeah. it asks a great question. What what if Top Gun was about NASCAR instead of the American military? And you know, I, I just the I, answer is you get a much better movie. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> it's like no no uh uh cut down and give me fifty soldier none, none of that shit. You know, it's all about it's all about laps. Um, and then you know we I think White Hunter Black Heart, which mm-hmm. is like I think you could argue at least for for me that might be Clint Eastwood's best movie. You know what I mean? Maybe, Absolutely. You maybe can not, make the case. Maybe not my person, but like it's it's in my top five for sure. And uh, I don't know. It is it is kind of fun. like you think of all the the geezers sharing Clint Eastwood memes on Facebook. They saw this one. They would they might have to step back a little bit. I don't. I don't you know he's a little too uh, 
anti-hunting. You know what I mean? What the <laughs> hell? But uh, I don't well, know. I also think that one's great for our project here of going in two timelines at once because it's about the making of the African True. by John yeah. Huston, a Humphrey Bogart movie, of course. No, and yeah. I think Eastwood's like, I don't know, kind of self-conscious, uh, serious auteur dramatist style uh, about the movies that informed him, which were not of that style, but you still have that John Huston boasting masculinity artistry where he mm-hmm. wants to be like Hemingway with a camera. Yeah. And uh, it's it's so many interesting ideas that go throughout all of Eastwood's movies are just like lodged in there. But who plays Bogart in that? Uh, there's no, there's no, no Bogart, real, no it's Bogart. more uh, about John Huston okay. going down there to shoot it and kill an elephant while he's there. I see. Yeah. And, and also close up. You know, a one. I mean, come on. How are you going to mess with close up? King of New York. When King, I think, yeah, I was just about to say. Good. Yeah, King of New York. I, I, I think I watched watched it for the first time in 2020. I watched it like four times that year. Oh, I, it's yeah. so rewatchable. I was, I was it's uh, so good. Definitely a rewatchable for sure. I, I watched that on 35 the first time I saw Ooh. it, and I swear it was shimmering. Like the yeah. the gold in the decor of that movie was shimmering off the screen. There's so much opulence in that movie. It's fantastic. And I mean the the acting of uh, Fishburne and yeah. Walken are kind of very singular performances, especially Walken. Oh, it's like yeah. I've never seen anyone act like that. Nobody in a had. Movie nobody before. did. It's, <laughs> it's a top two yeah, yeah. Fishburne performance too yeah. for me. And the second one is we jump ahead to our second year, '92, Deep Cover. Oh yeah, no, I mean, fucking, he holds it down in that movie like no other. That is one of the best crime movies of the '90s. Yeah, and maybe the ultimate Fishburne movie because he's like the lead in that. Yeah, one exactly. Too, yeah, you yeah. never get a lead in like. Well, he's the lead in quite a few movies, but not in like an artistically rendered genre movie like yeah, that, not which usually, is like our wheelhouse kind of. Not you know? usually good movies, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. He's in quite a few dramas that I'd like to check out, though. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's unexplored. I can't speak on it too heavily. Yeah. JT, any 90s picks? 90, 92? For 90, I guess I would say I want to shout out friend of the pod, John Patrick Shanley's oh, yeah. uh, Joe versus the Volcano. That one is really fun. Like, I don't know. I Tom Hanks in general is like a little like I, I'm not I don't know. There's something up with that guy. But uh this <laughs> one it, uh, 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 This one is like um like kind of like a weird like screwball like comedy of like a guy who just like finally has like has it with like like his uh, dead end job and like just sort of quits and like asks out like a coworker and then like there's this like wild twist with like a volcano randomly appearing and I mean all that kind of sounds like that sounds like it's getting a little random instead of just light humor. <laughs> But uh, it's done with, like, very beautifully, like, painted, like, expressionistic sets. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Like, um, I don't know, weird 90s screwball movie. Um, I'll check that one out. That 92, sounds... I feel like Evan has one oh, locked I and sure loaded. Do. Yeah, yeah, it's Husbands and Wives, of, of course. Of course, the best movie of 1992, probably. Well, I mean, it's. I think it's one of Woody's, The Woodman's best movies. It's, it's the one where he, I think, comes the closest to acknowledging himself in the way that people talk about him yeah um and it's the one which infamously as a fight scene between uh him and mia farrow this um argument that was reshot after she found out about him and suny mm-hmm. which is just uh, you know I, reason enough to see it if you're just a pervert who's like even even if you're someone who hates woody allen you want to watch it because you hate him but 
the film has a great like cut but if you're, up style if you're listening to this and you hate woody allen shut the podcast off and go listen to fucking blank check oh is that what uh, that's their thing eh? <laughs> sorry guys um well the, i think uh, the movie uh, uh, has such a great like cut up style like that editing in it yeah. it's just like snappy mm-hmm. editing like mid-sentence it's so bracing it's, and it's a strange great. style for woody because the camera is a lot more handheld uh and yeah. that that handheld combined with the jump cuts it's like it's almost like a stylized documentary style because a mm-hmm. lot of the dialogue there is like confessional to camera style uh monologue dumps especially at the end of the movie and that ending man it's like so hard well, to it's watch. like scenes it's, from a marriage yeah it, exactly in that way um and it's the uh it's the woody woody movie that has liam neeson in it what more can you ooh, ask for yeah i think i think about that scene where sydney pollock's like arguing with oh, his young girlfriend yeah at the party and like he like forces her to leave or whatever uh, just the the harshness of that you know matched with kind of like this you know r- more realistic style that woody's working with uh that kind of that movie kind of won me over because I, I I've yeah, always, you were a Woody skeptic. I was a Woody, and I still. Well, he, you knew he was innocent, but you didn't know if he was <laughs> yeah, a good sure. director. I fought, I fought for the against the justice system for him, of course. But uh, <laughs> but you like, were you were unsold on his movies. Well, yeah, yeah I, I I guess I always knew he had some good ones in him, of course. But like I I don't know, like Husbands and Wives was just like okay, yeah, this is some real deal shit. Yeah. I'm looking at your laserdisc copy of Crimes and Misdemeanors as we speak. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, that's on the wall of dead media with the laser discs of uh, American Gigolo, Unforgiven, and oh, that's great. Of course, Those are a VHS great tape things. of Doctor T and the Women. And yeah, yeah Eddie's living room is pretty sick. He, Say he, goodbye he, to it. It's yeah, the last, true. Uh, maybe, maybe, the last, maybe the last podcast we're recording in this living room. Where are you yeah. going? I, that is that makes. That I'm makes going sense. to Highland Park. Hey, to, uh, my girlfriend's apartment. Swag. Yeah, he's packing a bindle and he's moving to the city. Oh yeah, we <laughs> <laughs> have to go, come back and forth a lot. Just like different bindles, just like <laughs> take a bunch of trips. It's like it's taken me a year and six months to move because I can only fit certain things in a pin. All I got is this bindle, man. I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, to wrap up this segment, we would be remiss not to mention the pervert's choice for 1992, Roman Polanski's Bitter Moon. Oh yeah, of course, oh, yeah. the grossest movie of 1992. We'll be right back. What kind of uh, venue? That is to say. Thematically, um... What do I write about? (laughs) Caught me trying to be fancy. Yeah, that's it, Bart. Oh, that's a good question. Strange as it may seem, Charlie, I, I guess I write about people like you. The average working stiff, the common man. Well, ain't that a kick in the head? Yeah, I guess it is. John Kell should come here. Yes. <laughs> he should come to the extended clip studio. He should be the last person in here. He can face Queen Amidala. I'll get him right now. <laughs> what, is this, what is this, a standee of Queen Amidala from uh, Star Wars Episode One? Yeah, let's let's get a celeb heat check. Call the most famous person in your phone, everyone. On, 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 right All now. three of us calling Kaveh Zahidi. <laughs> I didn't know that Pepsi uh, was a... Promoter, uh, the Phantom Menace. It's very interesting. Wow. Qui-Gon Jinn had reached his limit. Qui-Gon Jinn had reached his limit. <laughs> that is always funny to me, like when people mention like Star Wars Episode One names, or just saying like Sebulba. Oh, you like, know, <laughs> cracks me up. Like, I don't... <laughs> Saboba. It had been a hard weekend. Saboba should have known not to drink like that. 
What's that, that she, cl- he was like a Gungan, hands all over the place. <laughs> that, that clip you posted of Letterman talking about the uh, Count Dooku. <laughs> like Osama bin Laden was there with Count Dooku. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Yeah, oh. that's I, I get where he's coming from, but the old man part of my man, brain is like uh, with foreign names and uh, Star Wars. Like it's basically all well, the that's same. What, all like, foreign. To all me. these people, all these millennials, uh, talking M's. about the, they're t- they're just talking about shows that I don't know what they are, but they're Star Wars shows apparently, and they're like, oh yeah, the Mandalorian and the the Algonquin and the Algonquin. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know these these things. I don't even I don't know anything about. Did you say Okonkwu? Okonkwu? Yeah, like uh, like the center for the Hawks. <laughs> the the uh, Okonkwu Roundtable. That's uh, for real NBA Okong- heads only. Okong- the Okonkwu Roundtable. That's like twenty people get that one. True. <laughs> he should have made. Them. I sh- I Star Wars made this a basketball Star Wars movies podcast Star Wars, for no, just, 15 uh, people. Uh, uh, Star Wars should have had a, a more of an African flair, you know what I mean? That's <laughs> We're back on extended clip. Timeline B, 1991, the Cohen brothers, Barton Fink. At this point, Joel Cohen director, Ethan Cohen producer, Joel and Ethan co-writers, feel like it's kind of a guild thing like yeah the same reason like the editor is quote-unquote roderick james but it's also it's just the cohen brothers mm-hmm. um regardless in their cohen brother timeline just placing this in the auteurist timeline it's also their first collaboration with roger deakins oh and boy does it look better than their first couple movies i will say that I, i'm a fan of blood simple uh, i'm yeah. a fan of miller's crossing but this movie kind of blows them out of the water. Like this movie, uh, visual, to me, visually for sure. Visually, at least, it like yeah. the craft steps up so much here and kind of enters the uh, the level of greatness that it maintained for at least the next ten years. You know, Barton Fink. What what, what is it about this one, Evan? Why why did you want to bring this one in particular on the podcast? Well, we we did talk about in a lonely place, and that was my other pick, and I. I kind of wanted to pick something else that had some connective tissue thematically uh, or ideas that it shared. You know, when you asked me to do another pick, he asked me for a whole other pick. And I, I ask uh, for a lot <laughs> in this podcast. Yeah. No, I was really happy to because that's my favorite thing is finding like juxtapositions like that. This is also a film about a, a doomed screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not the reason I picked it, though. I think that it's long been one of my favorite films about being a creative person or trying to be and succeeding at it and the and failing in other ways at the same time um or just I, I think it's just an incredibly rich and and layered movie about about art and in really and um i i find it endlessly fascinating for that reason there's Ma- a lot to talk about Malcolm what, what's your general you're not a huge Cohen brothers like head right like you no, like them really but you're good. not like they're not your favorites or whatever but yeah yeah but I, I just want to get into this because we've never talked about them on the podcast weirdly enough I mean to be fair it's like I feel like they have a pretty high hit rate for me personally but I yeah. guess it's like I've seen a few I dislike you know I'm not you know I bow to no man first of all yeah <laughs> no no uh, no but I, I you know funny enough I hadn't seen Barton Fink before you know and I mean I think this is kind of 
I'd seen most of their big ones, but I hadn't seen this one. And I've, I've, I feel like I've heard it described before. Like I kind of had an idea in my head and like, I don't know, this one kind of, this one kind of, there's still stuff that, you know, very Cohen like stuff that's going on, mm-hmm. but like kind of like the focus this movie takes like kind of on Barton Fink and like how much time is like in his hotel room kind of ruminating about writing I don't know. I feel like the story structure kind of took a different route than I was even expecting. And, uh, you know, you know, I was expecting quality, but I was kind of pleasantly surprised in that way. This is kind Mm -hmm. of, I don't know. It kind of feels a little sometimes, you know, I guess a criticism of the Coens and sometimes this is like burn after reading. I would say this is like a positive, the movie that makes it fun, but sometimes, you know, you have that very like film critic critique of like, Oh, it just feels like they're, uh, game pieces on a game board yeah, or whatever detached from their characters yeah. and yeah. with this one i feel like you know they they really get into the nitty-gritty of this barton fink character and there's a lot of uh different waves of things that come up that make it you know a very nuanced look at what it means to be you know a writer and i kind of like the conclusion that they <laughs> um settle upon and you know it has you know it still kind of has their signature humor and great casting so i you know no complaints from me here i you know, uh, Barton Fink, you know, good movie. Good guy. Good guy. I know Barton Fink Is personally. He a He's guy? a good guy. He's a good guy. I've worked with Barton Fink. I knew <laughs> Barton Fink. And you, <laughs> sir, are no Barton Fink. <laughs> There's a <laughs> tough new voice in the theater, and his name is Barton Fink. Uh, JT, had you, you'd seen this one before, right? Yeah. I, um, I like, whenever I thought of this movie, the, my first experience watching it was like, either in like middle school or like when I was a freshman in high school and I had like the there's that old Simpsons gag where it's like come on Bart we're gonna go sneak into an R-rated movie let's call Bart and Fink I can't I told my dad I'd wait for him Bart and Fink Bart and Fink Bart and Fink when I was a little boy I or like a, a teenage boy um I uh like this, I I was going through the cones and just like this one vexed me and like confused. Like I don't know, this one was just off, and I understand why now. It was just like a lot of things, like like with what Evan is saying, like about art and like the creative process, and then just also like old Hollywood like history stuff that I didn't quite comprehend as much as I do now. Like I don't know, I had like a. Like, I was just very detached from it the first time I watched it. I was like, okay, this is fine, whatever. But everything, like, I knew when we were going to rewatch this, I was like, everything's going to fall into place this time around. Um, And I do think, like, it does have a lot of, like, the traditional, like, Cohen, like, trademarks. But I I don't know. It also feels, like, a little, like, different from the rest of their filmography to me because of, like how like kind of abstract like it will get at points i mean they do that a lot but i i don't know it's less like and the humor is a little bit more subdued too mm-hmm. I, I don't know this Very one subtle. uh yeah 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 i think that this movie it, it's interesting because i i feel the same way jt it's different because I feel like this is a deeper psychological profile of the main character than you'll ever really get in a Coen's movie. Maybe inside yeah. Lewin Davis, you know, uh, maybe <laughs> just John Goodman bringing all of it to Walter and Lebowski. Uh. Uh, but uh, uh, th- this character is like the closest you get to a character 
in the Coen's movies up to this point in time, at least. But at the same time, this is a super postmodern movie. This is full of references. It's a symbolic movie. It's like all of these things that are to be appreciated from a distance are still there. But the fact that it is this kind of hot house nightmare thriller uh, and that the protagonist of it and the second build character both kind of have these deeper psychological profiles that you're a lot closer to than the traditional distance you see in other Coen's movies, I think brings this to life and makes it one of their best. Well, it's uh, to your point, I think that it's a movie that kind of is... um it's an ensemble piece in a symbolic way. Like mm-hmm. all the characters kind of reflect or represent some other part of the, the next character. They kind of need each other in some way. Like all of them kind of fit together into this thing. And it's not even clear at the end exactly what is real, like capital R real. It's not a dream movie, I don't think, but it's, it's a movie that, is is dreamlike in the way that these characters are it, it's sort of like you thinking of someone else and they're always going to be partly you because you're the one who thought of them that's how some of these conversations and interactions and especially the central relationship seems to be yeah the characters that come up that feel so off kilter make it feel more like a nightmare. And I think that's what I was getting at with my Inland Empire comparison or Mulholland Drive or oh yeah, Mulholland Drive a, a, a great anything example. like that really where you have, and this is to me the key to the movie is of course the, the big symbol of the movie, the picture of the girl that's in the hotel room. But if you don't know the story, Barton Fink is a renowned playwright who uh, comes from New York after his first big success to Hollywood to write for the pictures under Capitol Pictures. Uh, and he's staying at a decrepit hotel because he writes about common people and he wants to stay with working class people at a decrepit, disgusting hotel. Uh, So on the hotel wallpaper, uh, there is a framed picture of a woman on the beach, and that is what you think Hollywood is supposed to be. That is the glamour. That is a beautiful woman on a beach in Technicolor. He is in the real Hollywood. He's in the nightmare Hollywood. He's in the Inland Empire streets of Hollywood at night kind of thing where everything is a fucking nightmare. And he hears weird sounds coming from the walls. And there's literary references, as I said already. It's a very postmodern movie. Uh, The yellow wallpaper is obviously invoked here in the way that the deteriorating wallpaper you know, reflects his deteriorating mind and the wallpaper is held up with this cheap uh, cum looking glue that also <laughs> looks like the ooze that comes out of John pus. Goodsman's ear. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Pus, I call it ooze because ooze is like a monster word. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Because it starts out as pus <laughs> and by the end it's ooze. Yeah. Uh, but uh, also he, the Coens make him look like fucking Kafka. Like he looks, he well, looks, he's actually, he's supposed to be another writer. George he, S. Kaufman. But he lo- he looks to me, it's, th- and, yeah. and it's it. I say that because his assignment, his task, feels like Kafka, the trial or the castle, well, where it's this you're lost in this labyrinth of yeah. people in suits, and you don't know which way is up, but you know that you're being put through the ring. Well, the Kafka esque aspect of what he's 
tasked with doing is, you know, the, the play that he has this great success with at the beginning is uh, you only get a few snippets of dialogue. It's like the end of the play. It's He's like watching Eugene it from the wing. Yeah, it's kind of like it's exactly directly on the nose of what you'd think like a sort of stirring emotional play in 1930, 39 or yeah, like around the 1940 would be about like fishmongers and so it's like it's not those fishmongers. <laughs> it's early it's like like it's like we're start like you can hear the fish market on fulton street or whatever it's it's just like this hard scrabble we're really coming up through the the tenement life every, it, all that stuff so he's standing there in his tuxedo and watching like like nervously from the wings before getting called out for a standing ovation and there's a moment when he's like you see this guy behind him. He goes, he says a line like off screen or off stage, like fish, fresh fish. And I just noticed this time around that he, uh, actually is the, he's rigging the, uh, he's like working in the theater. He's not an actor. And I think that there's something, that's the beginning of a theme that goes through the movie about this disconnect between the character of this writer and he wants to write about the common people. And he's actually like, he doesn't even notice that that guy is doing double duty yeah. right next yeah. to him. Yeah. But- I mean, this comes to light like in a much more obvious way when Goodman is telling him over and over, I've got some stories I can right. tell you. And every single time he says that, you know, Barton Fink cuts him off and it's, it's like ad nauseum. It just keeps happening. And it's so obvious that this is going to be his fatal flaw. This, this dynamic of him wanting to write about the common man, but not noticing the common man. And it's a great satire of Of podcasting. Exactly. Uh, uh, (laughs) I, I love, I love the beginning and kind of like, how like everyone's complimenting him too. And he's just like, he's so unfazed by it. Cause it's like, only he knows what, you know, a true good work is, yeah. not these, you know, uh, these random fans who don't know anything. And I think, you know, not only is he not, you know, he has that thing where I want to write about working people. He doesn't listen to anyone, but he's so trapped in his, you know, uh, own neuroses, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And lets that kind of control his life and kind of like, I, I just love, um, you know how it's kind of centered on where it's like it kind of feels like there's a focus on fink and like every everyone else is kind of just like in the background at the beginning and uh you know only when you really get that real dialogue is him kind of going like you know all these kind of like one-on-one conversations he has with people like the stuff with goodman at the beginning you know it gets subverted towards the end of course but it is it is like i was just so fascinated by kind of like this random friendship and how much detail that the coens are given to it to they really work it up to where it's just like at least for me i'm like oh goodman's just like a cool nice guy that'll (laughs) hang out with you know and and all, all the endless scenes of them hanging out is i don't know it just the the their attention to kind of making uh you know his own self-obsession kind of uh, a huge part of the movie is what interests me you know largely about it well goodman plays we should say his next door neighbor in the hotel earl and is a sort of gregarious uh door-to-door insurance salesman who's profusely sweating and maybe he befriends or rather they they strike up a friendship because Initially, Barton complains of the noise <laughs> of him laughing in the other room. I think he was crying. You couldn't tell, really. Yeah, you That's couldn't tell if he was yeah, laughing yeah. or crying. Yeah. 
But who does he complain to? But of course, Chet, played Chet. by Steve Buscemi. <laughs> uh, I, I love that character. That's another, you know, trademark Cohen thing of just like these characters that you only get a little sketch of, but you know that they're so detailed and with the performer in mind and everything. You see Chet come like out of a basement, like he raises a floorboard and like his head pops up. Hell. It's like, hey, yeah. I'm Chet. You know, uh, he says it three it, times. He's like, uh, he says I'm he's Chet, Chet three and times, and then Chet. he writes down then he Chet writes with an exclamation point. You know, it's crazy. I, when we were watching in a lonely place. I noticed that when Dick Steele at the beginning of that movie, Bogart's character, the kid asks him for his autograph and he writes it and he writes a little exclamation point. <laughs> oh, uh, nice. uh, 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 uh. And I have to wonder if, if this movie actually Could've does been. have any kind of DNA in uh, in in that i don't doubt it i mean a movie about a hollywood screenwriter Doom and, screenwriter in the yeah, 40s and murder and you know uh death and other types of crimes coming about of murdering a woman yeah I mean, it, a lot. and that coming about out of you know writing uh you know hollywood stories so he's tasked to write a wrestling picture a b movie well, that, and, I, I was got so off topic but that's what i was gonna say was yeah. the kafka-esque thing yeah the and he doesn't know what a wrestling picture is you know he gets to watch like dailies which are just like wrestling footage <laughs> raw uh, uh, which i love that just getting to see the outtakes of the wrestling movies you know devil on a cake devil on a canvas 12 apple take one action i want a sign devil on a canvas 12 apple take two action i will destroy him God, God. It, it brings about this dichotomy, this kind of superficial dichotomy between high and low art that we kind of base our podcast on. Even in the early days of the podcast, we would, you know, try to do a more highbrow paired with a more lowbrow movie. Mm. Uh, and here we have this writer who wants to write these real dramatic stories where, you know, the, the common man has stories to tell. But instead, he has to write this dumb, trashy wrestler movie when it's like, oh, the Coens know that like the art, real artistry was found in those dumb B movies. Mm -hmm. That's why they put so much joy into the filming of those wrestling scenes. And that's why there's clearly influence from classic noir in all of their movies is because like they, they revere those movies. They know that they're great. And that's why you have that distance from Barton Fink is the Coens are laughing at his uptight sensibility. Yeah, and yeah. His, you know, refusal to write this trash because he wants to write something real. Well, what's Kafka-esque about it is that he's all up in his head and yeah. those are movies that embody something that are physical. And he is, it, it is as much about the high and low as it is the physical and the mental. Totally. This, this movie. And the his, of the mind. He's doomed. He's fucking doomed yeah. to do that. Cause, and when he sits down and watches those dailies, it's just a guy going, I will destroy you like no. nine times. Uh, 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 uh. It's one of the funnier. And it, it's just such a great gag that yeah. also is like just poetic in its own right. Uh, another, you know, side character that pops up, uh, old father of Frasier, John Mahoney, oh, yeah. uh, yeah. pop it up as a William Faulkner stand in, uh, you know, the a great novelist who has to go do hack work at the studio and all their scripts get retouched by everyone. You know, Faulkner was on uh, The Big Sleep, among others. Wow. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, you know, this is finally someone within this hack system that Barton Fink respects. It's another great artist who's doing this paycheck job. Uh, and so he wants to look to him for guidance, but of course, this guy is just drunk and uh, you know abuses his wife, who Barton Fink takes an interest to, and then that interest leads to her death. 
in his bed. Well, there's something really fascinating about that relationship between him and uh, and the Mayhew, that character, mm-hmm. which is like late by the <gasps> end. Of I think we have a call from the Oscars oh, right God. now. Okay. I'm sorry. Breaking oh, news. Let's, Breaking news. let's see. Hello. Do we do we have do we do we have Rob on the phone? Oh shit. We We're are on, on the air. air. We're live. We're live, baby. The carpet is... <laughs> so this is Rob Franco reporting live from the red carpet of the Oscars. <laughs> uh, the Oscars starts in about an hour and 20 minutes. Rob, what's it like over there right now, buddy? Oh, it's just doing some mess. Everyone is, everyone is half naked. Oh. <laughs> 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 Nothing How new are the then, babies? I guess, right? Are there <laughs> enough babies there for everyone? <laughs> have you seen the the man of the hour himself steven spielberg oscar oh no oh. nice that's oh. cool that's cool you uh you shake hands with anyone you uh grease in the palms Oh my goodness. Ooh. It it sounds it sounds crazy. We can kind of hear background noise a any, little bit. Rob, any star spotting, you know, besides Ted Saranda, any any celebrities you're brushing elbows with, you know, kind of walking by the halls and it like uh do do a double take, you're like, oh wow, that's Michael Douglas, you know, and anything like that. <laughs> Oh wow! I love it, Rob. Rob, I don't want to get you fired from your job at the Oscars. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna let you get back like to work it. now. Protect the Oscar at all costs. Uh, I know that is your job. Person. All right. So we'll talk to you later, Rob. <laughs> all right. Love you, Rob. All right. You got to hang up. Okay, now we're back with just JT. That was our Oscar corner. Uh, that, that was like the wrap up of Oscar corner. Maybe I'll edit it together yeah, in yeah, a better maybe, way. Make a little Oscar <laughs> segment. I can practically hear the tinsel. Yeah, the mad tinsel for sure. Rob's Rob's guarding the Oscar with a semi-automatic machine gun. <laughs> yeah, people don't know what his job is. On the red carpet, he's standing with a gun like an English doing, Bobby. Wha- yeah, fire, he has the warning shots in the air every five minutes. <laughs> the best picture envelope is in his back pocket. <laughs> uh, back to Barton Fink. Um, so the, there's there's a lot going on in this movie, as I said already, with the kind of postmodern like uh, you know meta narratives and stories about stories and uh, references to authors and uh, you know other other literary icons and whatnot. But it's not this super distance thing. It still is this kind of hot house thriller that the tension is racket, ratcheted up so high that every kind of weird move becomes really funny or really suspenseful. And, you know, once uh, the Mayhew wife dies, it like really flips another switch to bring in another David Lynch comparison, kind of in a lost highway mode uh, where it's like the second half of the movie is like, did I kill this woman? Like Jesus Christ, you know, who's that actress again? I I love her. Um, Judy Davis. Judy Davis. Davis, Who also dies in a similar fashion in a decrepit hotel room in naked lunch. Oh, playing Joan Vollmer's stand in character. The uh, woman who William Burroughs accidentally shot in the head. (laughs) 
Damn. Yeah. Oh, you yeah, know? the William Tell routine. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, it's funny She's with, great at that. With Mayhew, the Mayhew character in this movie, it obviously invokes, like, you know, it makes me think, oh, this guy's a little bit more like uh, Dixon Steele, you know, a little yeah. bit more of a Bogart-type writer. And it is funny, like, this double feature is funny because it's like, you know, in a simplified version, these are the two types of uh, writers there are, mm, you know yeah. what I mean? And I guess you could put a third now for, you know, third category of... Yeah, um, Jewish and not Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, 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 it's the two writers. Fuck, man, you really summed it up uh, better than I ever could. And the, the third category is uh, unlovable scum TV writers. Yeah, the totally. Qui- the quippers, as I like to they call them. They don't count. Um, but, uh, the queeby quippers. <laughs> the quippers. And, uh, but it, it is it is kind of funny, just kind of like the, you know, you have uh, Bogart. It's like kind of the romantic version of the writer. And then kind of Cohen's give you you know, kind of the actual version of a writer in yeah. a sense. So well, this it's, it also should be noted that this was written while they were writing Miller's Crossing. They were like fed up with Miller's Crossing because if you haven't seen it, it's this extremely convoluted crime story. It, it, that recalls film noir uh, in its convolution of plot. Uh, like it's on the level of the big sleep, if not further it, down the rabbit hole of convolution kind of. Uh, so in order to pull off all that intricate plotting, and of course it's going to be dense with character because it's the Coens, they just, they had to fucking take a break and yeah. that they started writing Barton Fink. And I think it shows in the material that they were like dealing with a lot trying to write Miller's Crossing. I mean, that's, that's so funny because it being about a screenwriter, <laughs> you obviously want to invoke, it's like, you know, they're putting some of their some of themselves in there but yeah. it, it is kind of no you say it makes it sound lazy it's like if i wrote yeah. a movie about being a podcaster who is trying to go to work and do a podcast at the same time <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I, you know if it's the like they're blowing off stress you know it's yeah. like you got to give them props on the talent and just like oh, this is what i'm going through got to express it in my and heart i think it's better than miller's I, crossing i think it is yeah. too I, I like i like i love miller's crossing i, I too. like i like the two coen brothers movies a good amount you know maybe more so just for their humor more than mm-hmm. anything. Like I, I like the, the stark sense of humor, especially in like Miller's crossing is something that I, I always recall. But uh, no, I think, I think the high hat, the high hat. I mean, yeah, lots of good <laughs> stuff, but like, I think, I think it is Barton Fink kind of does tap into something that is a little bit more complex. And I don't know, that's just, well, that's I mean, always attractive. Like I love when directors kind of hone in their own sensibilities and kind of give you something different. Barton Fink, it's obviously like a putz and a doofus, yeah. but like most Cohen movies, like spend a lot of time like really punishing and like hurting their their putts and doofuses, and like this certainly <laughs> does. Like he, he pulling their putts, <laughs> yeah, pulling their putts, yeah, putzes. Um, he uh, he goes through the ringer in this, but there's clearly so much more like sensitivity to his character, and I feel from the very beginning like Fink is, like, not consciously aware that, like, over-intellectualizing his art is, like, his problem. But, like, the fact that he has a problem with his, like, kind of hokey, like, corny play that's, like, being received well by, like, bourgeois critics. He's like, yeah, like, something's off here. Like, he he knows, like, he's, like, he's doing his art wrong, I suppose. And there's, Mm. like... I don't know. The Coens like have a great sensitivity to that, that he's like trying to like figure it out. And that like he is immersed in like he goes in this world with like just like the opposite, like 
the Hollywood execs like Shaloub, who are just like the complete opposite of intellectualizing art, who are just like, yeah, like just fucking like it's easy. Like you like there are a billion of these movies. Just make another one of them. Just pump it out. It's done. And like, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think ultimately, like, they're, they they do show a great sensitivity to like him coming to actually like build the script. And I think there's like, I, I don't know, beauty and under, even though the script ultimately gets like dismissed, they render that moment of creation like so affectionately. Yeah. I, the, well, there's this really. The, the, I I don't even know if we can get into all of the ways that it does that, but um, the idea of him like going into this place, you know, hit that the idea that he feels he can do better, that he has mm. some potential that could be truly great, and he feels initially he's like really worried about abandoning New York for Los Angeles for the pictures for this opportunity because he's like, well, I. I, I might be cutting myself off from the source. He's talking to his agent or manager. And then he's like, well, maybe there's some common folk in Los Angeles. And he's like, that's a justification. And then he says, Barton, it's a joke. And then <laughs> it cuts to the scene, the, the shot of the rock with the waves splashing on it. And suddenly we're in Los Angeles. I think there's something about like this. That's the, mis- this mistake that the, his flaw is, is having no sense of humor about things. Mm. Um, and he ends up in hell. Like what happens when someone with no sense of humor wants to write about the common man? Not, what the hell do you do then? Cause like if you have no, <laughs> if you have no lightness about that, you only think about how it's difficult and that it's dramatic mm-hmm. to be the, the common man where he winds up as a writer is in hell in this stuck nowhere place physically and metaphorically where there's nothing to go on because he just where is he going to see the real life of anything so then charlie the character across the way uh is like his only contact with that and um that becomes a whole i I don't even know uh, my point being just to bring it back to the writing thing really quick the the conflict between him and mayhew and that character it becomes clear later that that character is as doomed as, uh, as anyone can be mm-hmm. and that he sort of ends up in that same doomed place as himself. He is like Dixon Steele because he's he, those are two doomed guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also wanted to bring in one last factor before we get into this insane finale that happens. Right. Uh, another thing running throughout this movie that I wanted to get into is its place in history. So this is during World War II, before America's involvement. It's on the eve of Pearl Harbor. There's a lot of, uh, let's just say, a lot of K-slurs being thrown around in this yeah. movie. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of one Jew calling another Jew a kike, you know? Yeah. Uh, which, perfectly fine. I can say that to Evan. I can call him one. Uh, I can call, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we, we no, can, I, but should we? I have we, on whatever. my own podcast. Uh, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Whatever. Well, everyone on the podcast is Jewish. Yeah, well, that's not true, <laughs> but you like to say it. Genetically. So you can say uh, Pull up the genetics, the, <laughs> the paperwork. Yeah, get out of Regardless. I just want to talk about that because it's like the Coens obviously are super Jewish filmmakers mm-hmm. and what was happening to Jews in the world at the time, you know, they were getting 
fucking holocausted. <laughs> like uh, that was a horrible way of putting it's, it. They were but, getting owned for sure. <laughs> no, but so in America doesn't get involved in the war to stop the Nazis until mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor. Until Pearl Harbor. Uh, yeah. And I, I just think that this kind of has to do with the hell world that Barton Fink is living in where, you know, you have all these Jews running around the Hollywood studio writing uh, writing screenplays and stuff like that. And it's like, do they even know that the concentration camps are going on throughout Europe right now and that their race is being exterminated slowly by Hitler? Uh, it's insane. It, it's insane to think about in that regard, just like as another piece of context. It's like the Coens are so good at dropping in these little things that can send you down a rabbit hole of either what ifs or just like, you know, filling in more story within the world that this takes place yeah. in. Like in Inside Lewin Davis at the end. The cat like, is also uh, well, sort of yeah, one the, of those things. The, the, the box is one in of those this, things. The cat in that. The Bob Dylan in that one too. Sure. Yeah. It's like <laughs> they Jesus got the Bob Christ. Dylan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you got the box, the Bob, the cat. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, there are so many things that can just like take you down rabbit holes, and they're so good at just like serving these things up up on the side, but knowing that they have to complete a successful narrative too. Like you can leave. There, the, there's a strange dichotomy with them, which like you can have threads hanging still at the end while still having a super uh i don't want to say successful um what, what's the word satisfying yeah, a super yeah. satisfying ending that closes the book on things you could still have things hanging off because yeah. you you have these cops that come in to investigate the dead body they tell barton fink that uh his old buddy uh is actually madman munt uh who is a killer uh on the loose and that kind of explains the uh, the body and the box that probably has a head in it. But doesn't uh, necessarily explain the body. Doesn't which is, explain everything. It's still kind of weird. The body just kind of disappeared. Well, the, the thing about the body the blood. is, we should say it's the Mayhew's wife, mm-hmm. who's uh, actually you know he's her his secretary, but really his like life partner, wife, mm-hmm. whatever. And then it's revealed, um, you know, after. Uh, Barton is like banging his head against the wall. He has nothing for the story. Uh, he asks her to come over and help him. And she reveals that she's been the one writing all the shit mm-hmm. for uh, Mayhew. And Barton freaks out, but then is calm enough to be seduced by her. Yeah. Wakes up and she's dead. Uh, but that is a really crucial thing in the story too, is why he freaks out at that. Like he's, it's almost like, that scene plays out like someone's wife telling him that she's been sleeping with someone. He's mm-hmm. like, you, you, what you wrote his stories. He's disgusted. Yeah. And then he wakes up and she's dead. Uh, he's disgusted, but he also can't help himself because he has that instinct in him. He has he that need, dog in him. You need to get some. Yeah. Well, but um, he so. might've actually. Uh, 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 yeah, like, exactly that too. And I think that also brings back something like the trial, like fucking, you know, Joseph K's interaction with people with, with the women. Yeah. In that movie, it's like ridiculous. Like there are so yeah. many interactions in there that are just like so fueled by like wanting people to debase themselves in front of him almost, but then him being scared of that. And I feel like that is also Barton Fink. He's allowing these people to debase themselves in front of him and he's only going to react in terror despite the fact that these are the real people he wants to write about. Yeah. And these are how ugly the truths about them are. He just can't face it. Um, so 
we see, you know, everything get burned down. We have these two amazing cops investigating it. Very hilarious. Cops. They're great. Hilarious cops, super Cohen characters. Everything is a dry retort. I, the the lines like you see you notice I'm not writing that down. Yeah. It's not <laughs> <important>. <laughs> it's not, I got a good belly laugh on him. Yeah. Uh but then Madman Munt, John Goodman, comes back uh, on fire, setting the whole apartment <laughs> or the whole hotel on fire, running through the hallway. One of my favorite shots in the movie is, uh, you know, Barton in his room and you just see, like, through the door, Munt drop the, you know, barrel of the shotgun to reload it as he's walking by and everything's yeah. on fire. And it's just, it's incredible. He says, how Hitler is. He blows the guy's head off with the shotgun pressed against his nose. Yeah. That that kind of is what unlocks everything I said about yeah. the historical context of this movie is that he also says Heil Hitler before killing one well, of the cops. That unlocks another thread. It's like, damn, you know, what if a Nazi and a Jew were friends? You know what I mean? <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe if they talk things out, you know what I mean? Maybe this whole deal wouldn't what have happened. What if they were more than friends? Oh, well, well they, they, were, they were doing a little bit of wrestling. Yeah, little wrestling. the wrestling scene is, uh, according Super to the Coens, they literally said we think of it as a, a sex scene. And yeah. it, it is uh, symbolically anyway, so that's I all mean, that, that matters. shot yeah. of John, John Goodman on the his shoulder. Oh, going, I hate it so on. much. It makes me so uncomfortable. He's like a dog. It's like, take my ass, take my ass. Yeah. That's basically what he's saying. It's, it's, he's like, Oh God, it's disturbing. It's fucking disturbing. It's great, and he just he he pounds him down. You know, ground. like in the the crying game, the nightmare scene in that when he's like thinking about Forrest Whitaker and the the girl that he's had a revelation about. Uh, it, I imagine like that, like that's my nightmare. It's like it's all black, and then you just see John Goodman from <laughs> over the shoulder, like beckoning <laughs> you with his head. There's this thing about that the uh, the Mayhew thing. Well, okay, so after the woman dies, uh, then <laughs> Munt comes back, and he's got he gives. Barton, before he leaves, he gets Barton this box. The After box. the woman dies, he helps uh, dispose of her body. And then the next thing he does is give him a box. And then the next thing you learn is that that guy cuts people's heads off. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got this b- head in a box. Uh, and he's walking around with it everywhere. <laughs> you, you you know, it must be her head. Yeah. And then the, uh, the one of the last things that happens between him and, um, and Charlie slash Munt is he says, oh, by the way, it's not yours. Or it, he says, by the way, I lied. It's not mine. Mm-hmm. The box. And I mean, all well, also in that same moment, tying together, I feel like kind of what Eddie is saying about like the Hitler, like World oh, War II stuff. His, yeah, he's like, yeah. oh, I paid your family a visit, like uh, yeah. saying that, like the uh, like his uncle too. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's a good chance. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, there's a good chance something sour went down. In there. a charitable uh, gesture, Barton gives him. He says, you know, if you ever need a hot meal, they call up the, my family and in, in, on Fulton Street and whatever. So then you've got this box. Barton puts the box on the table and suddenly can write. And it's like, I think that the box rep is representative of something of Barton himself, his own head, his yeah. own ability. Uh, once he has he it, needed then to he... quote unquote conquer this thing to be able to write, even if conquering it means you know her head being in a box. Well, if it yeah. if it's his head, yeah, I think the, the the final scene with him in Lipnick, who's played with, just I can't say enough about that performance. Yeah, Who so is good. that? Oh, jeez, I forget. He's in another Coen Brothers movie too. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a Coen. He's player. really good. 
the scene where he's firing John Polito is insane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, that is one of the hardest, like, tonal turns within a scene that I can think of. Mr. Fink, never mind me. Never mind how long I've been in pictures. Mr. Lipnick has been in pictures just about since they was invented. He practically invented them. I think if he's interested in what one of his contract employees is doing, that employee should be able to tell him if he wants to stay an employee. Right now, the contents of your head are the property of Capital Pictures. If I was you, I would speak up and pretty goddamn fast. This man, this artist, what to do? Mr. Lipnick, I... This man creates for a living. Thank him for it, you son of a bitch, or you're fired. Mr. Lipnick, that's really not necessary. Get down on your knees, you son of a bitch. Get down on your knees and kiss this man's feet. Mr. Lipnick, please. Kiss this man's feet! So fucking good. I love that representation of an executive, too. Kind of like the very simple satire, but just like... Kind of the airs he puts on. It's like, I'm very interested in your picture or whatever. And, yeah. and it's taking like, an interest. It, it's just like, he's not. He's just like, he's. It's he's Michael Lerner, by the way. Oh, he's yeah. terrific. Yeah. Professional and shit, shit shovel. Another you know? hilarious gag about a guy who can't read. Just like yeah, yeah. him oh, being yeah. an executive who can't read. Love it. Fantastic. One of my favorite things. <laughs> yeah, he needs the story told to him. But the, at the very end, you know, it's like when he. The, he gets punished. He punishes Barton in the worst way possible, which is he says, I'm not just going to fire you. You're on contract, but you were not going to ever put out anything you write until you grow up. Which, you know, <laughs> Barton's finally written this great epic, this like his masterpiece. And he basically tells him like, yeah, you can't, that's never going to happen. You only you're going to have to sell your soul. Like you literally can't, like this is dog shit <laughs> and until you write the awful thing you don't know how to write you uh you're doomed and then it goes something i just kind of clicked for me on this rewatch was that the relationship between mayhew and his wife who has written all this stuff you know you hear mayhew through the wall earlier on like in a drunken stupor screaming for his honey like where's my honey and you realize that like barton is that's barton now like that they're in the same boat like mm-hmm. He, these great writers who don't know how to write shit and they can't write a bad thing. They don't know how to do it. So they need help to mm-hmm. be simple and they have to, they're just in purgatory forever now. Yeah. Also like, I love kind of like once he's written the script and he's like, you know, think very high on his horse. Like I made it. I wrote my masterpiece mm-hmm. and he goes to like, what is it? The GI dance or like this yeah. military oh, dance. So good. And, 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 uh, he's, uh, uh, and he's walking around like, you know, he just hit four home runs at Yankee mm-hmm. stadium thinking like everyone knows I'm the shit. I'm dancing with this girl. And, you know, I guess, I guess back in the day, if a soldier wanted your girl, you know, you'd have to let the soldier, you know, a soldier's like, Hey, this is a GI dance. Let, you know, some of the soldiers. I dance mean, Hey, it's there. wartime. Yeah. Yeah. It's wartime. And, it, it is just so funny. He's like, you don't under like you don't understand like what a, I've just I've just won the war in my head, and everyone's just like, what the fuck are you talking about, <laughs> yeah. dude? Like, it, it, and it outbreaks in a fight, but it is kind of like, you know, what you're talking about. You know, he's expected to conform his writing talents, whether he's actually good or not. You know, in, into like this mainstream Hollywood vision, and kind of like you know him having this personal accomplishment of like writing something he's proud of is like art is so personal. It's like, 
it, it, you know, in a way to where it's like no one is ever going to care about you writing some dumb script as much mm-hmm. as, you know, yourself is. And it's kind of a almost, you know, it's a little bit of a masturbatory practice if you do it the wrong way. Well, the, the sailor's so nice, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, exactly. can't share. Barton can't share. Share. You know, it is, you know, it is. He might have been on some alpha techniques there. You know <laughs> what I mean? Some alphaisms that Fink, yeah. Fink might have, you know, not allowed that to happen. But, you know, I, it, it's it's the GI dance, pal. You know, you got to know where you're at. You got it. You got to know your place in yeah, places yeah, like yeah, this. Yeah. Uh, so after the grand finale, uh, we go to the beach and we see the woman from the painting. It all clicks. It all comes together. And that's the thing. If if what Evan said is true about Barton Fink's place after his punishment, after, you know, uh, the studio is still going to keep operating during the war and he's just going to have to keep writing for nothing for purgatory. Uh, he is in the Hollywood of dreams. He is in the real Hollywood now. He's in the painting that's well, in the, the the hotel. But the thing is, it's not real. Well, that, the, that painting is it's the nightmare. The last line you really help me see this i think Mm -hmm. you know the last line in the movie he's sitting there he's seeing literally that painting which you kind of identified as being representative of the dream hollywood Mm -hmm. um this thing at this point feels like so far gone from anything so like he's sitting there and he sees exactly the the, that image he sees her it's the same pose the Mm -hmm. same lighting and he says are you in pictures and she says don't be silly as if to say, of course, this isn't the real, like, no, yeah. pictures, this isn't pictures. Pictures is everything that you've seen so far. Like, this, I am not in pictures. Yeah, I I love that ending so much. Yeah. It's like, you could accuse them of being a little too clever for their own good or whatever. It, like, wraps it up so neatly in a bow. But I don't think it does. I think there's still enough hanging threads to make it that dichotomy I talked about before. Where it's like, you don't know what the fuck's happening with Madman Munt. Yeah. You just know that uh, you just know that Fink is in purgatory now, and he's going to have to continue this, and the world is going to continue on as it does, and it's only going to get strong, stranger, and darker from there. The ending, holding the box, too. Yeah. yeah, the ending's earned. You know what I mean? It is Ta- like totally like, like when only stuff like that feels annoying when something feels too clever. It's just like. Well, the rest of the movie wasn't that good, you know yeah, what exactly. I mean. But it's yeah. like it's like you are, they earned it. We spent a lot of time in that room where that picture's just on the wall. Like it, mm-hmm. it makes sense in a in a cosmic way. You know? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of ways to read that line. There's a way that's really cynical, and there's a way that's actually more hopeful. It's like mm-hmm. the fact that you can recognize it. You know, he's an idealistic character. He's a bit naive. You know, are you in pictures? Or is this beauty in the movies? Is it really there? And she says, don't be silly, which can be like, of course not. But he's also sitting, he's looking at it. It's yeah. right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For the first time, it's actually there in front of him. JT, any thoughts on the ending or any uh, final thoughts on the movie and a rating? Um, yeah, I'm going four and a half bullets uh, on this one. Uh, I don't know. It's just such a rich, dense text that I feel like it stands in the upper end of the Coen's work. I feel like works about artistic creation, especially like writing, which is like a miserably boring task and like hard to make interesting. Like it's a feat in its own right for that. But like it's talking about art and like working as an artist 
and like doing that earnestly and sincerely and treating Fink's character with like a, a level of respect, but also is like letting the air out of his pretensions and like the like self importance that people get of like the declarative statement of like being an artist. And I think that's like such an interesting like tightrope act to balance because it's just like, I mean, again, like it's like there is like he does wind up in this purgatory hell, but it, it it's like freeing in a way too. like I, I there's like a there's an acceptance there. And like he does have that pride that emerges and especially the way like they depict the scene of him like writing like his masterpiece, too, is just so. I, I don't know, it just comes so, like, clearly, and it's so satisfied, and you, like, in that moment, like, you feel that victory with Barton, so I just love, like, everything it has to say about being an artist and the process of making something. Amazing. Well said. I agree. Four and a half bullets for me, too. I think that this just has the Coens operating on all cylinders. You know, I'll, I'll reserve the last half bullet only because there's, you know, there's a handful of Coen Brothers movies. I think that they're like slightly in another gear. Like yeah. I, I think A Serious Man, The Big Lebowski, and No Country for Old Men, probably the only three I would put slightly above it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that this one just like, it's just an endless trove of symbols but at the same time, it never gets too bogged down and distanced. And it is such an endlessly compelling world uh, that they build. And all of the formal aspects that make a movie, they, they've just already mastered, basically. Like, they know when to move the camera certain ways and when to keep it still. They know editing and framing and sound design and the use of soundtrack and a beautiful soundtrack from Carter Burwell. And they're just utilizing all of the tools that they have uh, at a higher level than they had in their career at this point. And it's like, this is, this is the beginning of their peak for me. Uh, So four and a half bullets. Yeah. I'm going to go four and a half bullets as well. Like I said, it is like kind of the balance of this movie is maybe what's most impressive about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, it's a intellectually rich, but still kind of connects on a, you know, an emotional level enough to where, you know, you do have some sympathy for Barton Fink and kind of uh, just, yeah, certain cinematography aspects, you know what I mean? Like certain scenes really stand out what they're doing with the camera work. Like that scene I was talking about before, like the GI dance, once that breaks out into a fight, it is like, you kind of see Cohen's having a little bit more fun with like their action fighting filmmaking Mm -hmm. or just even how the movie kind of begins or how like think kind of uh walking through you know this los angeles hotel and how Mm -hmm. they stage that and you know how all the characters are introduced it is they're working how endless the hallways feel yeah yeah it is uh they're working on a high level where like all the aspects of their filmmaking are well polished and you know there's no i don't know there's there's no res. I have no reservations about this. You know what I mean? It, it just uh, it just works on a on a great level. And you know, it is uh, kind of movies about artistry or whatever can kind of sound unappealing. You know what I mean? But I I think this. You know, the Coens have a bit of medicine to mm-hmm. serve people. You know, and which they're known to do. But I think uh, it's the, it's the ta- you ever have that good uh, 
medicine when you're younger. It's like pink powder, you know, it's kind of Pepto Bismoly, <laughs> but like uh, I think it was for ear infections. I used to get this medicine. Oh, that's appropriate. Yeah, and it's like it, it's like <laughs> Pepto Bismol, but it tastes better. That's the type of medicine we're talking here. All right. Well, you heard it here. First. <laughs> Evan, uh, yeah, as, as our guest of honor today, what what do you think? Any closing thoughts on this in a rating? Yeah. Well, I think that it does something that I also recognize in another movie I really love, which is uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm. which is that the central character in that movie, like Leo's character, mercifully and remarkably is not treated as a complete joke, even though he's a. a uh, he could be he, a lesser writer would have done that um i think barton fink is treated with that same kind of sensitivity in a way that only could have been from people who love the movies and love actors and writers um it has every opportunity to slag him off and it takes every opportunity to make him seem like a narcissistic um moron well too smart for his own good type of moron but it also shows that he has this great ambition and desire to to do something good and true um at the end of the movie i think that moment feels so increasingly uh symbolically potent and and beautiful to me of him sitting on the beach holding this box which might as well be like the box of his own ability his own desire to do something that thing that makes him want to be the writer that can write the masterpiece and he can't you know it's it's his now but he can't do anything with it yeah he's like given up like you were saying um jt about that sense of reconciliation or like you know it's once he's been rejected it's the first time you see him relaxed he's just like well whatever and when he's sitting there on the beach looking at that woman, it's like, it, it is, I think, just a really spiritually, like, profound uh, sort of symbol and uh, metaphor for continuing to hold on to this desire to make something of value, even though you know there's no place for it. Mm-hmm. You suspect that there's not. There's It's hopeful in a way that maybe there is. Um, I give it... Uh, three out of three stars or five bullets. <laughs> I just don't think that there's another movie that has this kind of sim- this focused symbolic uh, approach mm-hmm. to its subject matter. Um, I really haven't seen that anywhere. Yeah, else. a beautiful movie, a beautiful pair of brothers making the movie together. Yeah. Beautiful boys. <laughs> they're, they're just some beautiful boys. My my, my <laughs> R.I.P. Fairly Brothers. True. Yeah. Huh? R.I.P. Cohen Brothers. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> but both wow but both of both of the hollywood's great brothers yeah the, the great br- and now all we have is the daniels brothers true making everything all at once in my butt <laughs> Dan, they should they should advertise themselves as the daniels brothers the daniels brothers that's what they prefer to be called right the daniels brothers yes <laughs> daniel one and daniel two yeah <laughs> any there shouldn't be like any like directed by like you know, Joe and Schmo, it should like be, they should create a name that's yeah. their directorial exactly. thing. Like, exactly. The, you know, the, like Talib Kweli and Mos Def are black stars. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you get what I'm saying. Directed by Talib Kweli and Mos Def are black star. Yeah. Directed you, by Cohen's. Exactly. Yeah. A, Co- a Cohen production. That's you, all you got to say. Remember when we reviewed Chameleon Street? Yeah. 
that that's sampled in Black Star. You remember that? Oh yeah, interesting, interesting. interesting. A, little, a little fun for the fans. Well, a little for the uh, the backpacker heads in our True, audience yeah. listening to Mos Def and Talib Kweli, <laughs> rhyme sayers. Um, regardless of all of that, I I want to say thank you to Evan, our guest. Thank you, man. Uh, thank you to the listeners for enduring another leg of the extended Clipper Union tour. I'm aware that there's one episode missing. The, the, you know, the, sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes, sometimes a guest books an episode and then just kind of doesn't well, you know, follow you, through. You, you but you the never thing know, is, we're we leaving never, it open. Yeah, we're yeah, leaving it open. We no might need, no need to close any books. No we need to return close any books. to that episode eventually. Just saying, yeah, yeah. if you are tracking it carefully, blah blah blah. So anyway, uh, that was that. So we'll be back in a few weeks and uh, we'll be killing it once again. We got more great guests coming. The final leg of the reunion tour. We got Ethan oh, wow. coming back. Ethan Vespi, Will Sloan. Will Sloan. Will Sloan's coming back. Some Canadian hitters. Exactly. Will I Sloan is the <laughs> Jokerman podcast movie uh, correspondent as well. It, it it's true. Will Sloan. I mean, look, if there's a podcast, he's on it. This that guy, guy gets around. Canada's sending gets their best. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you guys. I. I relished the opportunity to talk too much about these films because uh they are worth talking too much about and uh if you want to if you want to listen to evan talk more listen to his podcast joker men it's Mm -hmm. about uh rock music that's right true (laughs) so no no you know i like it because it's we're not competing against each other music movies no those are that's good that's why we can be friends yeah exactly oh (laughs) if this guy did a movie podcast it'd be fucking (laughs) no oh you think i'd let him in my house it'd be toast that's why i get to do the this is such a treat because i like you know only get to talk about movies with bob dylan in them (laughs) or or lou reed or whatever (laughs) yeah you guys haven't done any lou reed movies yet huh we will there's there's that one i've noticed a trend a lou reed trend on like uh, YouTube shorts. Okay. A lot of people p- 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 picking interviews of Lou Reed where he's being like mean to the interviewer. Yeah. <laughs> and the comment sections are all like, Lou Reed fucking sucks. Oh. <laughs> like, Lou Reed's never made good music ever. Like, why is he treating this interview? <laughs> Did you see that Frank Stallone Instagram caption? From, I think it might have been from when Lou Reed died, but it's like, I saw the Velvet Underground in 68 and thought they were the worst. <laughs> I think there's a lot of Lou Reed hate that I wasn't aware of. Well, that yeah. means that we're doing something. Uh, important I just, over there apparently I just Joker love Man. to imagine Frank Stallone in 68 watching f- <laughs> fucking v- listen, v- like an extended like 26 minute S- Sister, Sister Ray, Ray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's the beginning of the Doug Yule era you know you get fucking uh, which, Frank and Doug Yule coming through Oh, speak, call speaking of which I, I just I have to run because I literally have to go record a podcast about Squeeze the Doug Yule Velvet oh, Underground great. album like uh, right wow. now okay really? great well wow. that was a great episode uh, JT uh, we lost you for a second but you're back but we're ending the podcast anyway yeah goodbye uh, have fun Thank talking you, about have fun talking about the best Velvet Underground record yeah the Squeeze, squeeze. <laughs> <laughs> good night everybody how goes the life of the mind Well, it's been better. Ha, 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 ha,
She loved me. 